I'd like to start by polling the room this morning by show of hands. If you are a dog person, raise your hand. Holy saints. Look at you. Look at you. Look at you. Okay. 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 By show of hands, who are my cat people? Oh, wow. Wow. Let, it, let the saints intercede in prayer for the cat people to, this morning. I'm just, I don't want to raise my hand quite yet. I used to be a dog person. I used to be a dog. My family actually used to be dog people. And then we had, to, uh, we had to find new homes for our dogs because we realized that we were not dog people with three, cat, with three kids in the house, rather. And uh, we have become, unfortunately, we've become cat people. Now, if I had known on my wedding day 12 years ago that my wonderful wife would become a cat lady, I don't know, honey. I may have not said I do. I don't know. I'm just joking. Of course I, I said, of course I said I do. The Edgerton household has become a household of cats because when my wife and I decided to get three cats last winter, a year ago, we got three cats because we hated mice, not because we loved cats. Amen. Yeah, come on. I hate mice. But we failed as cat people to get the two females spayed in time. Yeah, you see where this is going, right? The two female cats got pregnant with, you know, the local cats that live in the woods. And we found out that we're going to have two litters of kitties. Lots of kitties. Too many cats. And so we were able to find homes for these cats, and we unfortunately kept one, and now we had four adult cats. And then we took two of them to go get neutered and spayed, uh, but for whatever reason, we drug our feet on the second female uh, and did not get her spayed in time, and she got pregnant a second time. So I want you to brace yourself and think about this just for a moment. A person who used to be a dog person, I love dogs, not in my house, but I love dogs, now has nine cats in our home. Nine. That's sinful. Like, that's, that's horrible. I don't know who would have nine cats in, in their home. Oh, just, just you back there, okay? Well, we'll all go to the prayer room together after service and work, out, work this out with, with God. We have nine cats. Now, now, many of these cats have been spoken for, praise the Lord. But one of them, my wife wanted to keep. So now we're going to have, I don't know, I, can't, I lost count, four or five cats that we're going to keep in our home. And my wife named one of them. She named her. I believe her name is Artichoke or I Want to Choke or whatever it is <laughs> that that cat's name is. And the other four kitties, and I'll say that it is kind of cute to see my kids go out to the garage and grab the kitties and then put them in a stroller and push them around the house. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is weird. There's a cat in my house in a stroller. I'm at that stage of life, but the other four haven't gotten names. And what I've discovered by involuntarily becoming a cat person is that people take the time to name dogs, but they actually do not take the time to name cats if they intend to give the cats away. And this was fresh revelation for me because I realized that the cat that my wife named, Artichoke, actually began to take on a personality of her own. My girls will go out to the garage and grab artichoke and just artichoke and not the other four kitties that don't have names. And they will bring artichoke inside, without asking me, of course, and push her around and play with her and put her on her bed and I'll find artichoke like on my foot out of nowhere. It's like, get off of me, cat. But this little kitty, artichoke, has taken on a personality because my wife named her. The other four kitties? Who cares? One, they're cats, and they don't have names. I realized that this revealed something about humanity. It revealed that what we name ultimately carries with it immense value. I'll never forget when Ashley and I decided to name our six-year-old Mila before she was born. We were driving on the road, and we were look she was looking through some names online and what, what meanings they had. And when she hit the name Mila, she and I both knew that's the name. That's the name we want to name our unborn daughter. 
The same thing happened with our four-year-old daughter, Sia. The same thing happened with our, with our two-year-old, two-year-old son, Maddox. When we gave our children names, they then carried with them this infinite amount of value. There was no metric system that could accommodate the value that my children had, especially now that we named them. And perhaps you can relate. If you have children, maybe you're the kind of parent who took the time to name your children because you wanted to make sure the name had meaning. Or maybe you got to like your second or third child, you're just like, ah, just, you know, Maddox, that sounds nice. And you didn't care whether it had any real meaning to it or not. But regardless, even if you didn't have any meaning behind the name, the, the name takes on meaning. Because after time, as the personality and the humanity and the essence is, is transferred and comes out of that person, there's this infinite amount of value that is in that person in part because they have been named. Because a parent took the time to name them. It is a uniquely human capacity to materialize someone else's future by giving them a name. I know this is true because there's been some pretty unusual names given to children over the years, and it haunts them most of their adulthood. So they flip-flop their first name and their middle name because they can't imagine carrying with them that name all of their life. They're like, Are you, what was mom and dad thinking? Naming him or her that, right? The, the name means something. And it takes on meaning, immense, immense meaning. When God brought the animals to Adam in Genesis 2.20, Adam took the time to name the animals. The text actually says that God brought the animals to Adam. So Adam wasn't a cowboy that had to go round up the animal kingdom to name them. God brought them to him. And the text says to see what Adam would name them. Genesis 2.19, it'll be on the monitors to my right and my left. You can take the time to Find this passage on your device or in your paper Bible. This is where we'll be this morning. It says this in verse 19. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He, as in God, brought them to the man. It's very important that we make the distinction that Adam didn't have to go chase down the animal kingdom to name them. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Now, God Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, physics, obey the sound of his voice, just gave authority to Adam to name his creation. God is the one that created the animal kingdom, not Adam. And yet God imparts authority to Adam to name the animals. I can't help but wonder if there's almost like this like anticipation, this uh, childlike, oh, I can't wait to see what he names them. I can't, I can't wait to see how his human creativity, his, his humanity, his capacity to materialize that future just by naming something. I can't wait to see what he names them. And let's go on. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So God accepted the names. God accepted the names that Adam came up with, which I'm sure was a, uh, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it was a struggle bus for God, or maybe it wasn't. But I can't imagine God being like, platypus, that's what you came up with? Platypus? Really? And yet God accepts the names that Adam gives the animal kingdom. Verse 20, so the man gave uh, names to all the livestock, the birds, and in the sky, and the wild animals. For my skeptics in the room, and in some sense I share that and I resonate with you, how could, how could Adam uh, name an entire animal kingdom in a 24-hour period? 
This seems unrealistic. This seems idealistic. This seems completely out of, uh, of character and form for humanity to, to take on such a huge responsibility. Who could rise to the occasion of naming the animal kingdom? Well, a, a couple important things here to, to point out for, for any of my skeptics in the room who are, are, um, are looking for ways to, to discount this passage. Adam named the livestock the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. It says very little about sea creatures, and yet, from what I could find, there's two million classified species that's been classified for our day today. Two million, at least from what I could find. But of those two million, 98% are invertebrates, which means they have no backbone, right? I paid attention in science class, you're welcome. They have no backbone. That remaining 2% of 2 million is 40,000. And that includes the livestock, the birds, the, the wild animals, anything with a backbone. But even of that 40,000, even of that 2%, there's a huge percentage that are underwater that have backbones. So if we were to reduce that even further, we're talking about something like 25,000 and if Adam named the proto-species or the original species, we're talking about a number even less than that. He's naming the kinds, not the subkinds, the kinds. So here we have Adam taking the time to name a, really a huge amount of, of, of species, of animals. But if he was to only name the proto-species of 2 million, consider this. Let's just throw out the rough number of less than 10,000. He named the proto-species that were vertebrates only. And of those 10,000, only 5,000 got their general name. And of those other 5,000 got their specific names later on in history. So if we even took a number between 10,000 and 5,000, the way the math works out is that Adam has, just like you, 86,400 seconds in a 24-hour period. So if we did the math, and I don't do math well, so it took me some time to do this math, Adam could have named an animal every 17 seconds. None of this is the point. The point is that Adam did not, was not the whiz kid of animal kingdom naming. The point is, is that we don't now have better evidence for creation. Like you and I are sitting in the room. We have all the evidence for creation that we need. But as you look into this story of Adam naming the animal kingdom that God had created, God accepts the names of the animals that God brought to Adam. What does that tell you about the character and the personality makeup of God? It tells us that God brings humanity responsibility and includes humanity in meaningful work. That God is not so self-centered that he would exclude you from participating with him in his ultimate goal to restore all things on planet Earth. God's loving and tender and merciful and gracious demeanor is that of, hey, come, come and hang out with me. Come and participate in what I'm doing. I've got this great plan and I want you to be a part of it too. God is not an insecure deity that needs to show off to himself by using and abusing his creation, he is completely secure in and of himself. He did not need to make anything, and yet he made everything because he is a God of love who delights in sharing of himself. My question that I pose to you, friends, this morning, that in light of this truth, in light of God being the kind of deity, his personality makeup, his character that invites us to name what he has brought to us in responsibility. I ask you this question this morning. What have you done with what God has brought to you? What have you done with what God has brought to you?
See, God is generous and gracious and longs to share of himself and wants to give to humanity. He's a wonderful parent, this God of ours. What have you done with what God has brought to you? Adam's added value here cannot be overstated. You can laugh at this, but Panda Express has Adam to thank for their business. He's the one that named the panda. He got no credit and no royalties for it whatsoever. What God brought to Adam, Adam named, God accepted. And God accepted. My question that I want to linger and bother you this morning, I want this question to bother you. I want it to agitate your soul. What have you done with what God has brought to you? Let's talk about this uh, for a brief moment in in the available time I have today. I have been working directly with human beings, specifically with church people and people who are exploring the faith. Uh, They're looking for for meaning. There's no information deficit out there. There's just a meaning deficit out there. And I've been working directly with people now for 16, 17 years of my adult life, and I have heard, I've heard a series of what I would describe as human excuses. And because we are all a lot more alike than we are different, I hear iterations of the same thing. It's amazing what people tell pastors. Like, amazing. Some of these things I don't want to hear. But they tell them to me anyway, right? My wife is a therapist, so she and I get to commiserate together, all right? I have heard iterations of what I would call three distinct things people say in not doing anything with what God has brought to them. They believe that God exists. They believe that Jesus went to the cross and, and, and was punished and for the sinfulness of humanity. And he suffered a horrible criminal's death on the cross, but then he resurrected from the grave, defeating the power of darkness and death to invite humanity to follow him and be in perfect union with him and to participate in his purposes to reclaim all of humanity and all of earth back to the glory of God. And they can believe that and they can still do nothing with what God has brought to them. And here are the three things that I hear. You want to hear them? Here's the three things that I hear. Number one, I hear... Luke, I don't know what to do with what God has brought to me. I don't know what to do. I know what he has brought me. I just don't know what to do with it. I know he has brought me this vision, this impulse, these resources, this drive, this ambition, this burden, but I don't know what to do with it. The shadow of that statement is because you're afraid to try anything. That is the shadow. I don't know what to do with what God has brought me because I'm so afraid of failure. I am so fearful of that if I do something with it, it won't go right or won't go well or won't be received by the people in my life. And this is what fear does to people. It traps them in non-motion. It it strangles ambition is what fear does. And humanity's ability to tell stories about their future that never come true is one of our greatest powers. And we wonder why so often we feel unfulfilled in our lives. And yet what God has brought to us, we've done nothing with because we are so afraid to try anything with it because the story we've told ourselves about how it will all work out is bad and we catastrophize the future. And yet we are terrible predictors of the future. We can barely predict the weather. How could you possibly predict the next day? The second thing I have heard in my time working with people is, Luke, I can't see what God has brought me. I can't see it. 
I can feel it deep down maybe at, from time to time. I'll feel it maybe at a worship gathering. I'll, I'll feel it in a prayer moment. I'll feel it when my family's all together. I can't quite ID it. I can't quite name it. I just, I can't see it, Luke. I just, I can't see. I believe that God has brought me something to steward, some burden, some energy, some impulse, some vision, something to do with my life. I just can't see it. The shadow, I'm convinced of that statement, is because you're looking at what God brought someone else. And, and this is the, the travesty of comparison. And, and these are the chains of jealousy and comparison and envy. And envy is a disease for your soul. And it will eat at the insides of your inner dimension and you can want something so bad, and you'll be trapped by that desire. Dallas Willard says, all of the trappings of the human soul are unfulfilled, unmet desires of ours because we focus on what God has not given us. We focus on what God has given someone else. And again, we wonder why we're unfulfilled. We're, under, we're curious why God hasn't used us at a larger capacity. The third thing I hear, among others, but the third thing I hear is I don't like what God has brought me. And there are times where I'm not sure I like what God has brought me either. And this is truly what it means to be human. We always want what we don't have, and we always want to be where we're not. And once we get what we want, and once we are where we want to be, we realize that's also not enough. And so we want more. And we want more of the wrong thing. We want more water from the wrong well. Come overflow. Yeah, come overflow my life in something that is not the Holy Spirit. And we will be left longing and thirsting and hungering for something of meaning. The shadow side of that statement is because you haven't given it the time and attention it deserves. God has brought you something, a vision, a burden, an impulse, a drive, an ambition, a responsibility. God has brought you something to name. And may this church at this time in history be a church who take these iterations of statements and package them up in a perfectly beautified package with a bow and kick them right back to hell where they came from. They are excuses packaged beautifully from the enemy. I don't know what to do with what God has brought me. I can't see what God has brought me. I don't like what God has brought me. But here is where the Bible gives good news to those of us who have said these statements over our lives or have believed these statements in our lives. The good news is in Ephesians 2.10, it'll be on the monitors as well. It says, for we are, say the words, we are. Thank you. We are God's handiwork. We are God's handiwork. Think about that for a moment. God, the greatest carpenter of all time, saw fit to make us his greatest handiwork. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Say good works. Yeah. We are Christ's handiwork created to participate, created to create, created to add value, created for ambition, for drive, for adding value to the kingdom of God. God is looking for partners to link arms with, to co-labor, to co-rule, to be in union with. God is not so insecure that he cannot share responsibility. God is completely totally self-sufficient in and of himself. The triune God has everything he needs in and of himself completely and totally. The reason he created is because he loves, because he wants to share. It is too good to not share. This uh, passage reveals a truth 
that I believe can destroy some internal limitations inside of many of us this morning. And perhaps this is a truth that you can write down in your journal or you can tattoo on your arm or you can do whatever you want with it. And many of you need to hear this this morning, and maybe you're going to hear it for the first time and you're not going to believe it, but, but you'll need to hear it over and over and over again or you'll need to tell it to yourself over and over and over again is that your value is independent from your added value. And yet we live and we operate within a system where your value is completely dependent on your added value. That's what your employer is going to say to you. We are trapped in a matrix, so to speak, of value addition. And that your only value is what problems you solve or what contributions you make. And yet we see in Ephesians 2.10 that God says, we are God's handiwork. We have this infinite value. God calls us the crown of his creation. We have this infinite, limitless value in God's perception. He sees us and he sees, wow, that's my daughter, that's my son. I love them. They're so valuable to me. They're the crown. How can I find words to describe this? They're the crown of my creation, of everything I've made. They're the crown. Your value is independent from your added value. Isn't it freeing to know that your worth is independent of your net worth? Doesn't that just free up a part of your soul this morning? Isn't it just nice to know that God's not going to welcome you into eternity by looking at your portfolio? Isn't it great that we can now take time to compare resume virtues with eulogy virtues? And yet the world tells us that the most important thing are your resume virtues, your value addition. And yet God is not going to take the time out of his schedule to look at your value addition when he welcomes you into eternity. It will be your eulogy virtues that your children's children will speak about. Your funeral will not be talked about. Your net worth, your value addition, your funeral will not include any of those things. Have you ever been to a funeral that has described someone's career as the most important part of their humanity? I have, I've been to a lot of funerals and I've never heard that has always been their infinite value, their character, their humanity, how they parented, how they treated people, their drive, their ambition, their holiness, their godliness. It was the great and late now, doubtless Willard, that said, the main thing that God gets out of your life is not the achievements you accomplish, it's the person you become. That's what God gets out of your life is the person you can become. Hallelujah. I'm not going to be welcomed into Christ's arms with him evaluating my added value with my time on earth. I'm his handiwork. My value is set in stone. This is in concrete. I don't have to worry at all about how valuable I am in God's eyes. I can just accept it, receive it, live from it, enjoy it, be delighted by it, that God sees me as a daughter, as a son, as a handiwork. But, B-U-T, can you say but? With one T, your added value is dependent on your belief about what God has brought to you. Your value is set in stone, friend. You are worth everything in God's eyes. Your value is in concrete. It's not up for debate. But your added value is dependent on your belief about what God has brought to you to steward, to be responsible for. The works that uh, Ephesians 2.10 refers to, those works are God's, friends. It is our job as people united to Jesus, to walk in that way, to follow in that way, to embrace those works that God has prepared for us in advance. These works are not our spectacular show of, God, look at how much I gave you. 
God's like, no, 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 you don't understand. That's how much I built for you to walk in. That's how much value I created for you to participate in. That's how much, that's how, that's how, that's how much time I took to create something for you to, to walk in obedience in. And I just, I know, I don't know a lot of things, but I know human tendency. And, and working with humans directly like this for almost the last two decades, again, I have picked up what I would describe as a, a human tendency, a habit that is deeply embedded in our soul. And we need language to reveal, expose it so that we know what is keeping us from naming what God has brought to us. And if you want to be someone who's fully living into their God-given potential, you must accept the responsibility that God has brought to you in love by naming it, by giving it a future. I take these excerpts slightly from, I've adapted them from, a, from Michael Hyatt, but I'm going to describe to you what I would describe as limiting beliefs and their corresponding liberating truths. Here's the lib- limiting belief number one, is that I don't deserve what God has brought me. This is a limiting belief. This will shortchange you. This will limit you. This will keep you from adding the kind of value to the kingdom of God that God wants you to add. He's built these good works for you to participate. He's built, the good works are his. They're not ours. He's the one that made the good works. And then we're like, hey, that's an invitation I want to be a part of. Like, I'm going to say yes to that. I don't deserve what God has brought me is this self-talk. It's this self-limiting talk that that we say over ourselves based on some misplaced sense of identity, maybe family of origin or toxic work environment or strained marriage or whatever it might be. We say to ourselves, I don't deserve what God has brought me. Here is the corresponding liberating truth. Is that so what? What? Doesn't God know that? He still brought it to you anyway. Of course we're all undeserving. Of course we don't deserve anything. Why is the word deserve even in this conversation? We've already settled that. We're really deserving of nothing. And yet God has given us everything in Jesus. So of course we don't deserve it. That's not the point. God knows that. And yet he's brought it to you anyway. Here's the second limiting belief. Is that I will fumble what God has brought me. And I'll tell you that this is, man, this is painfully true for ambitious people. Especially godly people that want to use their lives for God's glory and participate in the mission. And do many things for for God that are great and glorious and I don't, know if I, I don't know if I can name what God's brought to me. I might fumble it. We planted this church four months before COVID. Fumbling was our greatest gift. Like we were better at fumbling than anything. Here's the liberating truth. Is that everyone is a beginner at the start. Everyone is a beginner at the start. God has brought you something, friend, to name. God has brought you something in graciousness and mercy and love for you to name. You will fumble it. Who cares? God's grace and his mercy will catch you. You will fumble it because everyone is a beginner at the start. No one who is an expert at anything was born an expert at that thing. They were a beginner too. Everyone is a beginner at the start. And third, and not finally, but finally for this morning, the limiting belief of what God brought me is meant for someone else. How often is this thought run through our heads? Like, oh, I know that God has put this ambition and drive and calling and impulse into the deepest parts of my soul. I know God wants me to do this with my life. I know that I've got this enthusiasm and excitement about this, this, this unmaterialized future in front of me, but I'm just going to shelve it because I know God's meant to give that to somebody else. 
And so we shelf the vision. We shelf the passion. We shelf that drive, that ambition. We shelf it. We're like, surely God has that in store, just not for me. I don't have the right education. Like, I, don't, I didn't come from the right family. I wasn't born in the right country. And we'll just go through all the excuses as to why we should put that thing on the shelf that God has brought to you. But here's the liberating truth. If that were true, he would have brought it to them. If that were true, if that were actually true, he would have brought it to them. There is nothing more encouraging than witnessing someone run in the ways of Jesus because they feel completely unrestrained, unchained, totally free to run after Christ and all that Christ offers them to participate in. And it is a painful thing to watch someone stumble and trip their way through obedience because fear is holding them back or they'll come up with some limiting belief. I don't deserve, I will fumble what, you know, it was meant for somebody else. And they'll just keep using an iteration of the same excuses as to why they shouldn't name what God has brought to them. Our church is named our future. We believe that we can add a thousand spirit-filled people to Indiana by 2030. We named it. It's got a name. Spirit-filled to us means that you've been freed from the bondage of sin, filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, and are forming into the image of Jesus. We've named it. Our church has named it. Can you take that same principle and can you name the energy that is behind your passion, your calling, your drive, your ambition to add value? Have you been able to name it? Because God brought it to you, not to someone else. And if you believe these limiting beliefs, it reveals a hard truth that we all need to repent of this morning, that belief can become the enemy of truth. Your belief, your limiting belief, your belief that you don't deserve it, that you will fumble it, that it was meant for someone else, that will become the enemy of the truth that God brought it to you. Some of you this morning need to repent of this. Your belief system is so strong that it is now the enemy of truth. These two things need to come into alignment by the liberating truths that God offers. And here we are, a people positioned in this place at this time in human history. And our time is limited. We have 86,400 seconds in a day. The other evening, my wife, um, the Holy Spirit used my wife to convict my spirit and soul like I had not been convicted in a hot minute. And I was working on this idea of 86,400 seconds and my wife and I just put our children to bed and then she came back and she's like, Luke, why are you on your phone? She's like, oh, I'm just doing a couple things, catching up some emails, doing this little thing here or there. She goes, can I see your phone for a second? It's like, okay, here you go. And she pulled up the whole like usage of hours, you know, that you can see. It was so, so embarrassing to be sitting next to my wife who just said, this is how many hours you've spent on your phone this week or this day fiddling around or doing whatever or whatever. And it was like the Holy Spirit struck me with a holy hot sword in my soul and said, Luke, you only have 86,400 seconds in a day. Do not waste a single second on something that does not add value to you or to the community of believers or back to me. Friends, if I wrote you a check for $86,400, what would you do with it? Would you immediately just go spend it? Would you invest it? What would you do with it? You have a check every single day for 86,400 seconds. Our time is not limitless. Our time is limited. God's power is limitless. God's provisions are limitless. His resources are limitless. There's uh, really no other luminary in human history other than Mother Teresa, who I would venture off to say has contributed to this idea more. Let me give you a, an abbreviated autobiography of Mother Teresa. 
Mother Teresa was, was born into a family in, in Macedonia. And she was born into what we would describe as a middle-class family. And Mother Teresa had a, a mother and a father. Her father was a, a businessman and involved in politics, but died when she was eight. So Mother Teresa's mother, who was a very pious person, would often invite the poor in the community over to their home for dinner. And so Mother Teresa was, her name was Agnes, by the way, was exposed to, to this when she was a child. And that's how she caught the value of charity. That's how she caught the value of self-sacrifice. That's how she was able to, to adopt this uh, deeper sense of value of treating all humans with dignity and love and, and care. And so at the age of 12, it's documented that Mother Teresa made a devout decision to live a life of piety and, and charity and religiosity. And then at the age of 16, she joined a convent. Can you imagine your 16-year-old daughter today joining a convent? That's an entirely antiquated thought. That is what Mother Teresa did. And as she grew in her charity and her devotion to the religious life, she became then a teacher and then a principal of a charity school. And she did that for the next 17 years. She had devoted herself to the life of charity, to piety, to a life of religiosity. She said no to the many things that life offers to be in this lifestyle. And she could have stayed right there. Because as strange as it sounds, being a principal of a charity school in those days was kind of a comfortable job. That was a well-adjusted, semi-cushy job. Then, at the age of 33, Agnes, Mother Teresa, was riding a train to Darjeeling. And she described in her memoir this moment where she had an encounter with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus that would transform her life radically. She would become radicalized to the way of Jesus. And she describes this moment where her spirit and God's spirit were united on this train ride. And God gave her fresh language, a new name, a second calling. A calling within a calling that would spur her on to this new life of piety and sacrifice. She was able to, in that encounter with Jesus, name and materialize her future by saying, God has called me to serve the poorest among the poor on the streets of Calcutta, India. That is a different calling. In one sense, we are all called. In one sense, we all have the exact same calling. We are all called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That comes before everything. That comes before planting churches, raising money for campaigns. That comes before everything. It is the engine of discipleship that fuels all kingdom expansion. We all have that responsibility on our lives. If you follow Jesus, it is our responsibility to make disciples. And then in another sense, we have specific niches where that is played out. Or what Mother Teresa would describe as a second calling. A moment where she had an encounter with Jesus where she didn't just have a life of charity and piety and religiosity. She had a calling to serve the poorest among the poor. So she went to her superior and asked to be released of the responsibility of being the principal of this charity school. In the age of 33, she gave the rest of her life to loving and, and caring for the poorest among the poor on the streets of Calcutta, motivated by what she named as a desire to care for the unwanted, the unloved, and the uncared for. She named it, friends. 
She named it. She gave it a name. She gave it a future by giving it a name. We've given our church a future by giving it a name. A thousand spirit-filled people by 2030. We know what that means. We know how to get there. My question for you is, do you know what God has brought to you? And if you do, what have you done with it? Have you named it? It is a uniquely human capacity to materialize the future because of God's holy ambition embedded in your soul. Your value, concrete, settled. The score is settled. You are infinitely valued in Christ. Your value is unquestioned, unthreatened. You have all of the value because you were made in his image. And yet, many of us don't respond to that and don't do anything with it because of our limiting beliefs, the excuses that we come up with. And so what do we do? We spend our whole lives doing important things that don't have any eternal meaning. Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, the Christian mystic, he says it this way, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Isn't that so true to the human experience? Doesn't that correspond so well to reality? that we want what we don't have and we want to be where we're not, but once we get there or once we have what we want, we realize that it's not fulfilling like we thought it would be. We've been tricked into doing important things that don't have eternal meaning. Jesus of Nazareth says it even better. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for the part of you that unites with God? The spiritual makeup of your personality that comes into union with Christ himself. What could the world offer you? What could the world do for you that would threaten that? There are many of us in this room who have a holy ambition of fire raging in your belly. You so long, you so hunger, you so thirst to be the kind of follower of Jesus that names what God has brought to you. You desperately want the courage and the faith and the resolve and the conviction to name what God has brought to you. You've got a passion for the future. It's unnamed, unrealized, unmaterialized. You've got a vision for your business, for your family, for a ministry, for a nonprofit. You've got a desire to serve those who are uh, forgotten about, but you've never done anything with it. You've got a fire inside your belly and it's slowly going out over time. Our hope and our prayer for you this morning is that you would take the time and have the courage to name that future, to put into words what God has brought to you, to steward, to be responsible for, to co-rule with him. God has brought you something. He has not left you out. You are not forgotten about. You are not last in line. God has brought you something. And so in the safety of numbers, as you have seen the prayer team and the pastoral team kind of scattered to the sides, and we ask them to stand on the sides this morning as almost a visual hug of our congregation. Because we want to invite you in these closing songs to not so much move vertically, but to move horizontally. Because if you have that energy inside of you that's feeding that passion, that vision, that idea, that ministry, that business, that person to serve, that family to reunite, whatever that thing is that you've not taken the time to name, God's brought it to you, but you've not named it yet, take that to a prayer teammate, to a pastoral teammate, and ask for the power of prayer to be transferred into your life with the touch of an anointing oil 
to empower whatever it is that God has called you to, to whatever it is that God has brought to you. Your value is secure. You have nothing to prove to God. You are completely secure in Christ. You were bought at a price. We were expensive. God loves us. God loves you. And he's not about to waste your life. He's not about to waste the resources, the value, the energy, the passion that you bring to the kingdom's table. But if you don't know what that is, if you don't know how to use it, if you don't know how to name it, get some help from people who have been down that road too. So here's what I'd like us to do. Maybe the lights can come down ever so softly and I'm gonna ask our congregation to rise to your feet so you can stand now. You can close your eyes as the moment um, continues on here. We're just gonna kind of suspend the, suspend the program for this moment, if you will. I just wanna invite you, friends, to reflect on your life ever so briefly and ask the Holy Spirit to help you see what God has brought to you. Ask the Holy Spirit to impart the courage to name what God has brought to you. Mother Teresa was able to name it, to serve the poorest of the poor. That might not be what you're going to name today, but you have the capacity to name it. So my invitation to you by the power of the Holy Spirit is to move horizontally in these moments. These prayer teammates are prepared for you to move up to them in prayer. The room is going to be quiet enough uh, to exchange words, but loud enough for those words to not be heard by anybody else. So Holy Spirit, we come to you now in great love and expectation that in these next moments, something in... Um, our lifetime would shift dramatically, that we too would be radicalized to the way of Jesus, that we too would, like Adam, have the courage to name what it is you've brought to us, Heavenly Father. There are so many sleeping giants in this room that long and thirst and hunger to bring what they uniquely bring to the table, but they don't know what to do. They can't see it or they think it's for somebody else. May the truth of the gospel set them free from those limiting beliefs in Jesus' name. May this church be empowered by the Holy Spirit to effectively reach this city in both the general way of making disciples and then in the specific nuanced niche way of how you, holy God, have called each one of us to name our metaphorical animals. So God, may the excuses fade. May the limiting beliefs be destroyed. May faith rise in this room. May a new horizon be seen by my dearest friends, Lord Jesus, so that they too would have the courage to materialize the future that you have called them to name. Oh God, we trust you at these moments now. We ask for a wave of participation. We ask for many people to receive prayer and anointing oil. May this be a milestone for us corporately, but yet for us individually as we look back on this day as a massive shift in our future, oh God. We pray these things in your perfect name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship.